I came out and said, guys, this ain't going to work. If we can't even get him to Camp One, how are we going to climb Mount Everest? We're not even on the mountain yet. Then I said, oh, let's just think about it. Walked back in the tent and I laid down and it's dark. And I remember we, I laid there and you go, PV, you awake? I go, yeah. He says, I'm not going to give up. He says, I heard everything you said. I'm not going to give up. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmare. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. And that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. So this past May 25th marked the 20th anniversary of our team's historic summit of Mount Everest. It's crazy to think it's been that long. Mountaineers and plenty of others just scoffed at the notion that Eric, blind since he was 14, could successfully climb Everest. Everyone told us up and down that not only was he going to be a danger to himself, but he was probably going to get one or two of us killed along with him. But on that day in 2001, Eric and our entire team, including our Sherpa friends, through preparation, through personal sacrifice, and the true and sincere belief that we would succeed. We stood together, arm in arm, on top of the world. And to celebrate this milestone, Eric and members of our record-holding team reunited virtually and shared memories and laughs and reflected on what the summit meant to everyone on a personal level. I wasn't able to make it due to some family obligations, but I hope you enjoy this stroll down memory lane and laugh and embrace the success of a wonderful team. Enjoy. Hey everyone, this is totally awesome to be here and celebrating our 20th anniversary of our Mount Everest climb back in 2001 and celebrating it with our No Barriers community and celebrating it with uh, five folks from the Everest team. There might be others listening, like Brad, maybe your dad's listening or something. Uh, so sorry, we couldn't get everyone on. But first, I want to say thank you to everyone on the team, 13 Westerners, eight Sherpas, Kami, Tenzing Sherpa included. And so uh, you guys changed my life. Thank you so much. And I'm really excited to have you guys on today. And uh, we got PV, Pasquale Scaturo, Pasquale Vincent Scaturo, our team leader from 2001. We got Michael Brown, our filmmaker and a, a part of the team as well. And we have Luis Benitez, who was a young buck back then in the day, hard to imagine. <laughs> and Brad uh, Bull and, uh, and Kevin Chirella, who was our base camp manager. So it's really great to hear you guys. Uh, I'll start by asking this 20 years later, you guys were just talking about it earlier. Do you look the same? Does everyone look the same? <laughs> From a blind guy's perspective, you all look the same. Oh yeah, we, we all look the same, Eric. Completely yeah. the same. PV got younger. I think he got younger looking a yeah. lot less, lot less gray hair now. Uh-huh. 
Somebody said to me, they said, I saw your Everest uh, vi video and they go, wow, you look so young. And I went, well, what do I look now? And they're like, uh, I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> like, I only hope you guys all smell better than 20 years ago. So. Harsh, right? <laughs> well, all right. We want to dive right in. And again, thank you, everyone, uh, part of the No Barriers community for listening. So I'm going to start with PV. How did you and I meet PV and where? Do you remember? Uh, and why did you have an interest in leading this team to get a blind guy to the summit of Mount Everest uh, when a lot of people thought it was sort of stupid or crazy or way too high of a risk? Well, I don't know if you remember this, Eric, but do you remember the uh, OR show in uh, Salt Lake City? Yeah, the outdoor, the outdoor show? retailer show. And I had a friend, Jim Slade. Remember Jim Slade? Yeah. And he comes to me and I was at this trade show and he goes, hey, uh, uh, him and I met in Salt Lake City. He says, you know, you know this guy named Eric Weinmere? I said, yeah, I think I've heard of him. He says, yeah, I know he's a real good friend. And he took me and we met each other in the hallway, the main aisle of the OR show. And we got together and started to talk. And then um, you told me about you were climbing this and you were climbing, you know, you climbed a nollie and everything. And I asked you if you'd ever climbed Everest and you go, no. And then I thought I asked you, would you like to, or have you thought about it? I think I phrased it. Have you thought about it? You know, and that was the first time. And then later, then uh, we got back to Denver. We both lived there. And then you called me and we talked on the phone and you asked me if I was serious. And I said, yeah. I don't know. And guess who the first person I called was? after that my dad no i called no. brad 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 you right there <laughs> didn't i hoping i was going to talk you out of it or what i don't know <laughs> you were the first person i called brad very first person what was your interest in in this you know what i mean you had already gone to everest you had already summited once yeah so what was the excitement around this project because i remember it as well at the or show you saying hey do you ever climb everest i said no and he goes you said you want to and i go yeah I'm, i'd like to and then you were like you want me to lead your team and i was like yeah dude and you were like yeah dude there's a lot of dudes back then you so know, you were excited right off the bat yeah you know i like challenges and i thought it would be challenge plus to, to be without being corny about it eric and you know that i really thought that if you could summit everest it would be one of the great mountaineering feats ever because you and I spent a lot of time talking about it, Eric. Remember, yeah. we didn't. Yeah. We didn't just say let's do it. Remember, we talked about how to fund it and how we we're going to do it. Yeah. It was planned. Well, since you brought that up, the funding. We went to the National Federation of the Blind. We met the president, Dr. M Mark Maurer. Do you remember the questions he asked us? They were pretty wild. I we I remember exactly funding from the National Federation for the Blind uh, of the Blind. Excuse me, which we wound up doing. They put up uh, a lot of money. It was blind people doing bake sales and car washes. Yeah. To get us to the summit. So it was a huge deal for them. Brad, so when you got that phone call from PV, were you thinking, well, I could think of like a hundred other things I'd rather do? Because I know you and Reba were engaged and uh, like, you know, or, or married already. So yeah, you had like a lot more responsibility than the rest of us dirtbags. Well, PV is hard to say no to for one, just in general. But I think... Uh, it, it took a little convincing because like you said, my life was kind of ramping up responsibility wise and all that. But end of the day, it was like, you know, you climb big mountains and stuff and climbers get kind of a rap for being selfish because really what's the point? And uh, the, it just seemed like a great way to leverage something I love doing. I mean, I want to hang with you guys and do that kind of thing. And it just seemed, uh, you know, what Aunt P was getting at before about how it was just 
really ambitious adventure. I mean, it was like legit, you know? Sometimes those bold things, you just have to, you know, there's a hundred reasons not to, but then you just got to figure out how to rationalize it. And for me, it was something, you know, I'd been there, I knew the route, I could lend a small piece to the to the bigger picture puzzle. And it just, it all fell into place. And fortunately I married a, a very understanding woman and- uh, Who came to base camp and hung out. And I was, uh, she should be congratulated for hanging out with Kevin Chirilla for three months. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So Michael Brown, our filmmaker, how did you connect with the project? Because this wasn't your first time on Everest either. In fact, your uh, first time on Everest making a film, I don't know, I don't want to use the word tragic, but it was uh, comical. Uh, you know, there was a lot of challenge, let's say. <laughs> yeah, we don't need to go too deep into that. At first, I didn't want to do the trip with you guys. I was kind of like, no, that's, I just did it. I'm tired. I kind of want to rest and be done with Everest. And then over time, you know, I was talking to PV and his team about you know, what was needed and how to make a movie up there. And finally, one day I just said, I'm tired of this. I'm just going to do it myself. And so, uh, yeah, well, you got invited by one of our sponsors. I remember if I remember correctly, and you were going to bring the first high definition video camera to the summit of Everest, which was a huge thing back then. I think that camera was like close to 25 pounds and uh, all the equipment and everything that came along with it. So your job was way harder than any of ours. Well, let's, let's be clear though. The Sherpa carried the camera and all the equipment. I was just kind of, kind of uh, walking along next to them and sometimes getting kind of upset because I wanted to be farther up the trail, but it is heavy equipment and, but they were fantastic and made it all possible. But uh, what a journey that has been, that film. I mean, I, I should actually write a book about the making of it. Oh, sorry, Eric. Film, what was the name of it? You got to plug it, bro. Oh, <laughs> it's called Farther Than the Eye Can See. Nice. Men's Journal called it one of the top adventure DVDs of all time. It was nominated for two Emmys and uh, won a lot of festivals. And it's still kind of, uh, it's, it still kind of holds its own out there in the world of documentary films that are 20 years old. It's a cult classic. It's like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I don't want to put it that way, sure. <laughs> but yeah, interesting process to come in as an outsider to your team. And, and it took a little bit of time to be accepted as one of the, one of the group, but I guess we, it stuck and here we are still 20 years later. Hmm. Yeah. Giving each other a hard time. But we're all like brothers, so it's nice. And, uh, and so... Michael, I'm glad you were you were there. And one of the things I really appreciated that I got to know very quickly about you was that, yes, you were a filmmaker, you were trying to make a great story, but at the same time, you were really just straight up team member. Like if it hit the fan, you would have been right there helping out. So that really was something that taught me a lot about leadership is that, sure, we fill these specific roles, but when it comes right down to it, you got to be sort of nimble and fluid and care about the team and be connected to the team. You can't be a separate entity. Thanks, Eric. Yeah. So Luis Benitez, you were, as I mentioned in the earlier conversation of young buck, you had been to the Himalayas, I think once or twice, but you were, you know, kind of a young guy and we thought we needed a strong back. They say strong back, or no, what do they say? Strong back, weak IQ. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> so we thought you would be awesome. I think PV had met you. So how did you, 
how did you get involved? And then how did you see your role on the team, you know, as a young guy in his twenties with like all these, uh, old guys? Yeah, no, it, uh, it was interesting. I, I had been on an expedition in the Annapurna region on a mountain called Gangapurna, which is between Annapurna two and three with a small team from Colorado where I worked as a outward bound instructor. So it was a bunch of Colorado outward bound school instructors and PV and I shared a, uh, a Sherpa in common um, who had worked on his Everest expedition, worked on our Gangapurna expedition and just asked me very simply, would you mind carrying this present back to Denver to PV? And I brought the, the gift for PV back to Denver and his big shiny office downtown in Denver. I went down, found a parking spot, went up, sat in his nice corner office and he said, oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What are you, you know, so what are you doing? What are you about? What's, what's your story? And, and I, uh, you know, told him what I was up to and I asked him the same, what, what he was, what was going on, what he was up to. And uh, sure enough, that's when he mentioned that the trip he was putting together with you. And I didn't know how, I didn't know if, all I knew was I was going to bug the hell out of PV until he put me on that trip. Luis, you were the only person of everybody on the team we really didn't know that was, wasn't an outsider, but people we hadn't climbed with. I mean, that's something else I learned from you. It's really cool to invite younger people uh, who maybe, you know, were quote unquote outsiders or had a little bit less experience in the Himalayas, but you know, it's like their big chance to cut their teeth in this incredible environment. And so uh, I was so glad to have, uh, you know, been able to provide that for you, Luis. And uh, you came through in ways that are hard to describe. You you kicked butt in, in amazing ways. And we'll talk about those. So let's go to Kevin, Shirella. Kevin, you, I invited you as our, our base camp manager. Now, that's not necessarily the most glamorous job in the world. So one, what, what were all the jobs that you had to do at base camp to support the team? And then, and then secondly, was that weird? Because I know you're not a guy with an ego, but I, I just think it might have been weird to know like everyone was going up to the summit and you're going to be at base camp supporting. I wanted to go and be a part of, you know, history. I had said, I had said to, you know, my family and my friends, I know the, that this is going to be a history making team and I wanted to be a part of it. So being a part of a base camp manager uh, as the as the team member was was a great role. You know, I did communications, answered emails, phone calls. You know, every day provided you guys a weather report. You know, I read a blind joke every day just to keep it light. Had to clean the crappers out. You know, and make sure that those were clean and you know restored with toilet paper. But that's important. You know, when these guys are high on the mountain and busting their butt and coming back to camp tired and hungry and all that, you know, the, the last thing they want to do is have to deal with, you know, the, the monotony of some of the, the, the things that aren't great in base camp. So, you know, I just wanted to make that fun and keep it safe and safe and healthy for the guys too, you know, and being in charge of loads that, you know, where was all the, the oxygen and food and stuff out on the mountain? You know, those were things that I worked with Kami and, and PV with, and, you know, that was fun. I learned a lot to be around that whole team and the history of that was something, you know, we'll never forget. So it was awesome. And I remember fondly you and Kami and a bunch of the team Sherpas coming out and meeting us at the base of the icefall or even way into the icefall with hot tea. And uh, man, we sure appreciated that buddy. Yeah. And you know what? I didn't have an ego back then as a climber. Would I have loved to have been a, a part of the team at that point? Yeah. It would have been great. 
Did I learn a lot for when I went back and climbed it six years later? You bet I did. You know, everything I learned being around that team and watching other people from, you know, climbers from around the world and trying to absorb as much as I could was such a blessing. Kami Tenzing Sherpa. Kami was our head Sirdar. He's the head Sherpa. He was a huge part of the team. I'd say responsible for our success as much as Kevin and PV. And it was uh, a lot of wrangling to get uh, the support team of Sherpas. I know there's, you know, some fear and superstition in the Sherpa community about getting a blind person to the summit. So Kami, you were amazing to actually recruit these really strong Sherpa team to uh, support us on the climb. I am here. There you Can are. you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Cool. Was that hard recruiting the Sherpas? Well, no, no, uh, no harm. And Kami no and uh, right First now. time when I, I was in Portland and PB called me, I'm in Kathmandu. Yep. I am in Kathmandu now. Uh, so about this, your blind expedition, first time when I get call from PB, I was at Portland, Oregon. That was uh, 2000, uh, before 2000. He called me, Kami, there's something going on. And this, I have a blind friend who want to climb Everest. What do you think? He, he asked me, then I said, well, if he's able to go uh, to go Everest, there's uh, no problem. And he asked me, what do you think about your people? And I well, I don't think no one will care. Uh, then, then I asked him, and Phoebe and I, I talked this several times, and I asked him, I know, I think he will be able to go summit he'll, if he's strong, but most important is for the blind person, he has to learn how to cross the ladder. Yeah. How to climb the ladder. There's so many things that you have to know that uh, we have to, for the running expedition, we have to know every little thing. So we, so people have, I have to do all digital things. Well, so we spent that. Anyhow, it was really nice. I also know this. Yeah, after Amadabla expedition, and you and me and PP, we stay in your room at the Marshanti Hotel. And you asked me, Kami, what do you think about your ship when I was in Kumbu? You think, uh, what about your people think? Me being blind, blind people in a climate. And I told you, and, and also, yes, it's true. And a lot of people told me, I think he must see a little bit. His react is, he can see a little bit. All oh, right. I told you that, and then he said, and at the time, I also thought maybe you see a little bit, because I don't know much about it. I haven't seen much. Then I thought you see a little bit. And then I, then you, three of us talking at your room at the Marshandi Hotel, and he said, if you, no afraid. If you don't mind, I will show you. Then he, you, you pop up your eye and <laughs> you show me the, your artificial well, eye. My mark. prosthetic eye. It was that was amazing. <laughs> so Eric, you realize that when we came back from Amadabam, people didn't think you were blind because why? By the way, you were walking; they thought you were faking it. And that's when you took your eyeball out in the room and showed Kami. <laughs> <laughs> I said, just to settle this uh, dispute, here you go. <laughs> Tommy, you were so instrumental in making everything happen and supporting the team and uh, organizing the team and doing 
everything behind the scenes and in front of the scenes. So we've climbed many times since then, back to Amada Blom two years ago, yeah. and the Losar ice climb, and Low Boucher, and, yeah. uh, and all kinds of things. So Kami is, is a good brother to me. And Luis, so, oh, I, actually before Luis, I wanna get to a, an honorary team member, my dad. So I was really proud that my brother Mark and Eddie and my dad accompanied us to base camp. And there's a video that Michael, you sent out recently of uh, me saying goodbye to my family and hugging my dad. So dad, can you unmute? Are you there? And what were you thinking at that last hug? Well, and you had a, a bad hip, Dad. So you limped your way to base camp. So that was very impressive. Yeah, I, I uh, later had a, uh, a new hip put in, but Everest finished it off the old one. But uh, this was a pretty life-touching moment for me. You know, there of course was a risk. I mean, it may not have been the risk that a lot of people said that he's going to kill everybody on the team and kill a lot of people around him, but it was a risk and there's a risk for every one of the climbers. And so when we had that last hug, as you were heading off into the ice fall, you were going up and uh, I was going down and then to come back here and follow you uh, as best I could through sat calls and internet and everything else, you know, it was a pretty emotional moment because Brad, you faced this with your dad, but you were together. Eric and I weren't together. So, you know, I wasn't positive that I would, uh, you know, see him again, not to be overly dramatic, but, you know, that's the case as it was with uh, with Everest. So, yeah, Michael, there, there was a picture that, as you said, you had, it was just of that hug at base camp. I want to say one thing, which is that, you know, I've thought so many times about how Everest was the launching pad for every one of you guys. I mean, there were achievements before, but basically Everest was a launching pad for everybody to do great things in life. For sure. Thanks, Dad. It was a catalyst for every one of us. So this question's for Luis. You, I think, went through the Kumbu Icefall with me the first time. That's the section that Kami mentioned, crossing ladders. It's a very volatile section of the mountain. Many people maybe don't know that you don't cross through the Kumbu Icefall once, you cross through it, you know, like 10 times to go up and down and set up your camps and get acclimatized, which is, you know, getting used to less and less oxygen. Um, and that first 13, that first trip took me 13 hours. And I remember getting to the top of it and I was just almost ready to pass out and tripped over a little crevasse. And I think you had a ski pole in your hand. You tried to grab me. And you beat, uh, beat me in the nose with that ski pole. And I remember there was blood uh, down yeah. my face. Do you yeah. remember that moment? And I crawled into the tent and I think PV took my crampons off. I was so exhausted. I couldn't even take my crampons off. You want to relive that moment, you and PV? Oh, I'd, I'd prefer not to. But since you brought it up, um, yeah. I might as well. Uh, yeah, might as well. So. Yeah, I mean, for those of you that don't know a lot about Everest, the ice fall is probably one of the most hazardous parts of the climb. Um, it's the terminus of, of a very active glacier, and it, uh, it's like walking through um, a, a collapsing ice field. And 
you know, Eric, one of the things that we've discovered about each other's rhythms and patterns and mountains is that, you know, for you to really hit your groove, you need to understand the terrain and have covered it a couple of times and, and, and be able to understand how to sort out a pattern of movement. And the first time through, there's just no pattern. There's no way to achieve that pattern. So hence the 13 hours getting through the ice fall, really long day. And I'll never forget when you get to the top of the ice fall, it flattens out, but then there are still crevasses that you have to step over and there's fixed lines and we're clipped into the lines. And the rest of the team is at camp one. We're coming in, the sun's going down. Mike has all the cameras set up. They're ready for the, the big arrival at camp one for the first time. <laughs> you put a foot into the crevasse fall forward. I reach out to grab you and the ski pole hanging around my wrist launches up and clocks you in the nose and gives you a bloody nose. So we kind of recover enough to the point where, listen, we'll get you all cleaned up. When we get to camp camps only 10 minutes away. And I remember we came around the last little corner, everybody's clapping and applauding. And then Mike took one look at your face and quietly turned all the cameras off and everybody went back to their tents. <laughs> and that's when you, you got into your tent. I went back to my tent to feel miserable and, uh, <laughs> and then that's when PV came over and started taking off your crampons. That uh, that was not a fun day. That was a low point, wasn't it, for us all? Yeah, yeah. You know, well, we just didn't know not. what to expect. And when we got into it, it's okay. Time. You were trying to save my life. I have and a different memory of that moment, even though I know, I mean, Mountaineering has so many great emotions all swirled together at the exact same moment. But my recollection was that that was like the second or third time we had tried to go through the ice ball. And yes. the first at least once or twice we turned around because it just took too long. We we're like, and that was gonna be a big deal. If we couldn't get Eric to the ice fall, that was gonna be the end of the trip. Like why even bother all the work, you know? It just, to me, it was like, okay, we've got some legs now. We, this, we, this might actually happen if we can just keep going. And I, you know, I, I remember the bloody mess and, and Luis was nice back then. And he was like, oh, I'm really sorry and all that. And, and Eric said, it's okay. And yeah, so it <laughs> sparked my uh, belief that we just, ragtag group could make it happen well you know when we got eric when we got and i think you've you and i've spoken about this when we got there hours and hours and hours before you got there we had gone up to camp one and we had set everything up and where's eric where's eric Where, then finally towards dark it was you know it's almost dark when you got there it's always dark pv <laughs> So Eric, so listen, so he gets there and I get out of the tent and we were making some soup and I look at you and you looked like hell. You there, you were dead tired. Remember that, Brad? His he, hair was disheveled. He was blood was, he was done. <laughs> blood was coming down his face. And I grabbed him. We put him in the tent and I laid you back and I took your crampons off and you just laid back. And I said, you need water? No, I just need to rest. I need to rest. And I set you there, kind of put you in your sleeping bag. And then I walked out of the tent. I got out, waited a while. And then if you guys remember, we had a meeting. You remember the meeting we had? And yeah. I came out and said, guys, this ain't going to work. If we can't even get him to camp one, how are we going to climb Mount Everest? We're not even on the mountain yet. And I said, you know, maybe there's something we're missing here. Maybe what we do is let's just leave him here. We go down, bring everything up, and don't go through the ice fall again. Let's just leave him here. And we'll just push on from here up. Forever? That. What's that? Forever. 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 No, we were <laughs> talking about bringing it back. We are going to leave you in Camp 1. <laughs> then I said, oh, let's just think about it. Walked back in the tent, 
and I laid down and it's dark. Yeah, I know it's always dark, Eric, but it's dark now. <laughs> and I remember we, I laid there and you go, PV, you awake? I go, yeah. He says, I'm not going to give up. He says, I heard everything you said. <laughs> he says, I'm not going to give up. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. And, and yeah, we heard that we heard that from our, our tent. And I think that's when I screamed over for the thousandth time. Sorry, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to give up, Eric. And that at that point in time, I think that was a pivotal, really impactful point of time then, because then we went down. Of course, the next time you came up, you did it in half half time. And then the last time you did it, you blew through there. We didn't even stop. I think you did the whole thing in four hours to camp two or something after that remember yeah you get stronger on that mountain despite the fact i lost a couple gallons of blood <laughs> thank you pv and Luis and brad so michael brown when all this stuff is happening you know you're the filmmaker you're looking for a story i mentioned how hard it is for you know the film team you're running out like an hour before everyone else and getting set up in these scary precarious situations like in the Kumbu Icefall, where nobody really wants to hang out. Just talk about that experience from your lens. Well, you know, you, you won't, don't want to just be taking video of people's butts as they walk away from you. So uh, it's kind of our prerogative to get up early and, and get out and set up a shot. And then if you take a break to have a snack or something, then we're going to try to run ahead. But I think you've said to me many times, you know, don't ruin this for me. And I took that to heart because I didn't want to ruin the experience for you and also didn't want to prevent you from making it to the top. So I think that's part of the job as a filmmaker is to um, be quick and not slow everyone down. Although by the time we got near the summit, I, I did actually ask you to go back down a little ways because I missed the shot of the South Summit. Oh, and don't. You actually did. Oh, we're going to get around that. <laughs> you walked to back down several steps and uh, we redid the shot, and I'm very thankful for that because uh, that shot is uh, was important for the film. So yeah, there's a lot of aspects of being a filmmaker, and uh, the same in the Grand Canyon. I think you said the same thing to me. You know, I, you told me you said I, I really want this experience to be amazing, so don't ruin it. And once again, I I took it to heart, and you know, it makes making a film hard because. It is easier to make a film if you can order people around and tell them exactly where to be and what to do. But I, I take pride in not telling you that very often, only when necessary. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. So Brad, jumping ahead. So you did something really amazing on the summit day. And that was, you know, when we got to below the South Summit, there were fixed lines running up the mountain and the ones that you thought I wanted to use were to the right and they were buried by uh, the snow from the monsoons. They were maybe buried in a foot of snow and um, you ripped those out. Do you remember that experience? Do you remember? I that? do, that was, uh, that was some serious disappointment because we knew that part was gonna be sketchy and we got up there and uh, the ropes uh, that we were counting on were like gone right? Just buried in the snow. And so like, all right, we started whacking at it. And Jeff Evans was there too. He definitely did his part. And it was one of those things like you kind of, everybody's willing to sacrifice their stomach to make the, the expedition a success. And I think we both sort of figured this is going to be kind of our last gasp. And then, you know, the team could come up and, and get it done, you know? 
And uh, it was just one of those things like the, the energy of the teamwork was just so motivating. I mean, it was, it's hard to even fathom. It's hard to explain how much effort it takes to do things up there. Like tying your shoes takes the wind out of you. And so you don't want to waste any effort. You don't have to. And so these fixed lines were buried under like a crust of ice. And so it was just like thoroughly exhausting just to dig out a foot of it. And we had to dig out, you know, 50 to 75 feet of it in this space. But we thought for sure it was going to be helpful. So it was like, all right, this is it. We're going to, you know, exhaust ourselves, but it'll be worth it in the end because, you know, everybody is pretty safety conscious and focused on making it uh, summit day, which, you know, you're on this ridge and it's like, you know, 5,000 feet one way and 3,000 feet the other way. And uh, we just knew it was a critical part of the climb to make it as safe as possible. So, yeah, it was exhausting, but it was, uh, it worked out. Yeah. Just nothing like pulling ropes out of snow crust at 28,000 feet. So, uh, that act and uh, a thousand others from all of you was the reason I reached the top. So I don't forget that. If I could just tag on to that, and I don't know if Eric Alexander's on anywhere, but um, he put it really well early on. And it may have been even before the expedition, but he talked about how, you know, Eric, I don't know if, if I'm going to make it there with you, but I know I can help you summit. And so it was sort of that, that teamwork effort thing that was just huge. Yeah. Thanks. And then PV, you got uh, sick. You know, you... You had been working like crazy. The rest of us would go into our tents and sleep and you'd be organizing and doing radio calls and handling logistics and running around. And that just was so much pressure. And I think it wore you down. And uh, you had a bout of a relapse of malaria. And Pee-wee, when I think about like, you know, good leadership, even though you weren't there physically, you were there in spirit and you were the reason why we got to the top because I remember you barking things out on the radio the whole time. For instance, one example was that Jeff Evans, his uh, oxygen regulator was filled up with some ice and uh, which happens from the moisture of your breath. And you said, Hey, so-and-so has the other oxygen regulator, make sure he gets it. And you were the one who knew that. Yeah. And and Kami as well. So, you know, you guys were leading even flat on your back and uh, that's, that's textbook leadership. Well, you know, there's another thing two people don't realize, you know, there's things we talk about on Everest and one of them is how to plan for a failure because you get a lot of failures in the big mountains and people don't realize that we had actually stashed uh, oxygen tents and everything at the balcony camp five in case of emergency Remember, uh, Brad, that we knew what happened. You, we were together on Everest in 95, 96 when that disaster happened and most of it happened at the balcony. So we went ahead and positioned stuff there and there's an emergency there. So we had thought ahead of a lot of these things. It wasn't, you know, so. So Kevin, you weren't on the summit, but yeah. we were on the balcony and it was bad weather. There was lightning, I remember. Brad said it looked like a pyrotechnic show. Lightning exploding all around us, clouds. And we were very much considering turning around. And uh, I think you kind of saved the day, buddy. Uh, what happened at that moment from your experience? Well, I just remember before you guys had left to go to the summit, I had spent quite a bit of time with Michael Brown going over, you know, how to read weather reports that we were getting. PV had a, PV, where was your connection from with our weather reports? It was one of your oil rig companies, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a service that I think Michael Brown connected us with, maybe, or PV. And the weather reports I, weren't that great back then. They weren't really solid. They were a little bit murky. I think, Michael, we were using a Norwegian uh, service, remember? Yeah. So Michael just taught me how to read the weather. And and based on, you know, where we were at at base camp, the way the weather was moving, 
where I could see some things where those guys were in the clouds they couldn't see. I could see where it was clearing up and I knew the wind was blowing where it was going to get clear. And I just told the guys, hey, I think it's going to clear up. That's all basically I said. Some people caught the message. Some people didn't, you know, but I remember that was a big thing and relaying messages. A lot of messages got relayed from base camp to commie at, at camp two and then PV at the South Call. And that's how we communicated throughout the night to the team. Well, that was awesome, Kevin, because I remember Chris Morris looking up to see what the weather was doing after you said that. And he said, I can see a star shining through the clouds. And then the, I don't know if this is urban legend or whether this was real, but apparently Shermbull, Brad's dad then said, well, if you want good weather, go to Central Park in June. And uh, we carried on. He did say that. He did say that. Okay, so not- That really. sounds like Sherman. He did say it. To, yeah, he said that for sure. I was right there. He said it right to me. And then he went right by me because I was kind of standing there on the radio. And then he said, you guys want good weather? Go to Central Park in June and I'm out of here. And he was on his way up the mountain. And then we all and followed. Long- yeah. We never caught up with him though. He might have made it to the yeah, summit well ahead of us. fire that, uh, Sherm. <laughs> <laughs> Luis, so you and I were pretty much hand in hand. Not that I was actually holding your hand, but we were pretty much arm in arm getting to the summit. Do you remember that? Oh, uh, why not just admit it here to the to the general public, Eric? <laughs> but uh, no, it's you know we were probably within 200 feet of the top. Obviously, we were there for you know as a team, but also representative of of what you believed was possible. So I thought it only fitting to get out of the way and and let you that you touched the top first, literally. And uh, you were pretty insistent that that's not the way this was going to happen. And you wanted to, uh, to go up side by side. So you held on to the rope and I held on to you. And we just kind of huffed and puffed and, and slowly stumbled up. I, I think I started crying first. I don't know then if you followed after me. And, and, and by the time we got to the top, we could see the rest of the, the gang coming up behind us. And, and that was it. Hmm. It was a powerful experience. I remember the sound of space, of sound vibrations moving out through space. And I, you know, it was just infinite up there. Uh, there's nothing for those sound vibrations to bounce off of. So it just moved through space. Uh, you know, I was standing in front of my tent a lot of nights, just kind of envisioning us, you know, that idea of just envisioning myself on the summit, feeling the snow under my feet and, you know, the hugs from you guys and tears and flags blowing. And, and uh, I had been on that summit like a hundred times before we actually stood there together. And that was the most people from one team to reach the summit of Everest in a single day. So that was, that was awesome. <laughs> and PV, I remember us getting down. There's so much more to cover, but we're running out of time. Uh, I remember getting down through the ice fall the last time. And, you know, you're like legs are like rubber, you know, you're just, you're like a rubber band that's been stretched too many times, windburn on top of sunburn. I'd lost like 35 pounds. I was so psyched to get through the ice fall. And then you bring the team together. You celebrate. I remember we drank some, uh, we'll keep it PG-13, some Cokes at base camp. <laughs> and I called Ellen. And, uh, and then it, I think it was soon after that that you pulled me aside. And so I remember thinking, okay, PB, he wants me to like sign his baseball cap or something. Uh, and you said, hey, Eric, do me a favor. You said, don't make Everest the greatest thing you ever do. And uh, I, it brings tears to my eyes because no barriers came from that. This movement came from that. 
statement. So you nailed it, buddy. And it was the worst motivational advice, the worst timing in the history of motivational advice, but it was great advice. And what do you mean by that? What were you telling me? Well, you know, Eric, what I've seen a lot is, and Brad, you know this, we talk, we, we, you get a lot of guys that they'll do one thing, they let guys on the speaking circuit and they say, yeah, you know, I climbed a mountain 25 years ago and I'm going to spend the rest of my life talking about it. People do one thing and then they go off and they, they don't do anything else with their life. And I, I just felt that it, it was it was a really impactive event. You know, we got a lot of press. You got a lot of press, Eric, you know, with the NFB and everything. And I almost I thought it would have been doing a disservice to everything you had done if that was the last thing you had done and you spent the less the rest of your life just talking about summoning Mount Everest. And in a lot of ways, by doing one of the great physical feats really in history and by moving ahead and doing other of the great physical feats in history like kayaking the Grand Canyon and everything that it only adds to Everest it doesn't detract from it and that um, there's so much more ahead of it and I just that's why I want to tell you don't make this don't disappear and go on the talk circuit make this the beginning of your journey not the end of your journey and, and TV what you said to Eric has been picked up and embraced by every single person on the climb. Yeah, I mean, for me, PV, that led to, you know, with Dave Sherna and with uh, Mark uh, Wellman and Hugh Hurst starting No Barriers, this movement that we're growing every day to help people break through barriers. And I know that in return, um, you guys live that message too. I'll start with you, PV. Uh, you went out and you rafted the entire Blue Nile River, thousands of miles, uh, I think it took like almost a year. That was another Everest for you. You haven't stopped. And so it's really impressive to see what you've done with your life. And Kami, after the climb, he came to the U.S. and he was the first Sherpa to meet the President of the United States in the White House. Luis, you went back to Summit Everest, yeah. what, eight oh. times? Uh, no, close, but uh, Michael and I got a friendly competition to see uh, who would stop first. And you guided so the I, mountain a bunch of times. Tell us how many. Uh, Someone did six times, was on the mountain seven times, including our trip. Yeah. So you went back you and you the all kinds of mountains. You also worked for the governor, and you were uh, responsible, along with your team, of bringing the uh, OR show to Denver. So, like millions of dollars to Colorado. Uh, so as a Colorado, I thank you there, buddy. And then Kevin Trilla, you uh, went back to Everest and summited six years later on the north side. And you have done all kinds of projects through your K2 Foundation to uh, bring blind people. I think you got like eight or 10 blind people to the summit of Kilimanjaro. What I think I have my facts a little bit off, right? No, I had eight people that I led on one team to the, to the summit. And um you know, I've just been fortunate. You know, what I started with Eric many, many years ago has, you know, led and opened up many paths for where I've, you know, taken my career. And it's been a great journey. I run a foundation now that helps people with disabilities. We've raised almost $10 million over the last 12 years. So it's it's been a, it's been a great joy to give back to other people with disabilities and make a difference in their lives. And you know, to continue to help Eric and follow his career and support No Barriers. So yeah. it's been a lot of fun. I appreciate it.
Yeah. And Brad, you uh, had a parcel full of kids, <laughs> four kids, and are happily married. And you are an architect, and you help no barriers with our plans for our beautiful camp up above Fort Collins, uh, where we bring uh, veterans, injured veterans, and and youth. So you've been an incredible part of this legacy. Thank you for everything for the last twenty years. And then Michael Brown, you have gone out to make a ton of amazing films. And we've stayed uh, very close, and you made a beautiful film about our Grand Canyon trip uh, called The Weight of Water, which won the Banff Mountain Film Festival. And I know that was kind of a, a huge coup d'etat for you in your career. It was indeed. That's uh, The highlight for sure was that, that evening in Banff when uh, we were up against uh, Don Wall and Free Solo for the grand prize. And it, it came to us, and uh, it doesn't get any better than that. As you, as you all know, those two films have done fairly well in the world. And so I want to end there and just say, you know, hey, what we did together 20 years ago was amazing. But PV, your advice was the best advice I've ever had in my life. And I'm so proud of all of you for going out and continuing to not make Everest the greatest thing you've ever done. You guys are all crushing it. And uh, we'll hope for 20 more years of health and happiness and and no barriers breaking through all kinds of barriers that exist in the world and thank you to the no barriers team as well thank you everyone totally awesome i love you guys we would like to thank our generous sponsors that make our no barriers podcast possible wells fargo prudential cobank aero electronics and winnebago thank you so much for your support it means everything to us. The production team behind this podcast includes senior producer Pauline Schaefer, sound design, editing, and mixing by Tyler Cotman, and marketing support by Heather Zocali, Stevie DiNardo, Erica Hui, and Alex Schaefer. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, Guidance. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at nobarrierspodcast.com.